Welcome to Encounter Grace, where we come face to face with God's work in the world for our good. Join host Jason McKnight as we explore practical issues of community, theology, and leadership in everyday life. Hey there, and welcome to another episode of Encounter Grace. My name is Ben Hendricks, and I have with me... Jason As McKnight. always, Jason. And so today is uh, another episode. As always, I'm always excited about all of these because I think the content is always so good. But this one in particular, I uh, when you mentioned this topic, I got excited. Uh, and I knew I couldn't offer too much, so a lot of this will be me interviewing you. But it's one, uh, as we get closer and closer to 9-11, to this weekend of tw- the 20th anniversary of something that I don't, like we couldn't possibly have ever imagined. No, it's true. Until it happened. Hmm. And, you know, there, there will be moments, and we've already had some where we, in our own communities, where we can remember and memorialize the loss. But what we want to do today is not, is not just do that, right. but rather to help, honestly, me in some ways, but mm-hmm. so many of our listeners as well process and, and think clearly about several things, uh, especially as we're kind of back in the swing of some of this, as we're witnessing a bit of a current disaster, uh, if I can say that, in Afghanistan right now. I'm grieved at it. So Jason, let's let's kind of like relive a few of the moments of 9/11. Let's go back 20 years. Uh, not all of us were in grade school uh, like I was, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and then attempt to uh, kind of if if you could help us think clearly about this and enter into the worldview of those who did it, and then mm. uh, I think lastly, kind of turn our attention and help us process kind of what's going on currently in Afghanistan uh, to see if was this all a waste. Huh. Yeah, well, let's do that. Let's let's think back. I think a Tuesday morning, mm-hmm. Tuesday morning, sunny September, blue skies. Uh, I lived in Boston at the time, uh, which is interesting because several of the planes left. I think all of them left from Boston, and something diabolical awoke us from our slumber: a plane flying directly into a skyscraper. And we discovered something as a culture that the world is an evil place. Now, people had been Mm. saying that. (laughs) There really is a right way and a wrong way to live. I mean, we know this. We talk about biblical worldview. We've been doing this for a couple weeks. There really is a right way and a wrong way to live. But our sleepwalking culture had the luxury of ignoring that and of mocking those voices. And they would say, yeah, there's no objective truth. All cultures are equally good. None better, none worse. Get off your high horse. Live and let live. And then a plane flew into a tower. Mm. And then minutes later, a second plane into a second tower. And it wasn't an accident. It was something on purpose because all cultures are equal. Oh, wait. And then a plane flew into the Pentagon. And then a field in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, where passengers gave their lives to save more destruction. And on 9-11, 3,000 people perished. Moms and dads, not at war, just at work. And first responders who walked into harm's way to save others and paid for that with their lives. I mean, 9-11, we saw heroism in those first responders, in those Flight 93 passengers. We saw stoicism as people just did the next right thing. They stood in the gap. They set aside, you know, so much of the petty silliness that makes up so much of our time. (laughs) And they stepped out in strength. We saw calling out to God, a national day of prayer called by the president, services of remembrance, church attendance spiked. 
you were in grade school. I was uh, that weekend. I had been assigned to preach at a, a little small church in a Massachusetts small town, Pulpit Supply. Never been there before. Never been there since. Didn't know the people. And it's like, well, I can't just do the next sermon in the series the pastor wanted. We've got to talk about this. Yeah. But people were hungry. They were hungry for God. But we saw something else on that day as well, is the concept of good and evil re-entered our public discourse. And there really is right and there really is wrong. And no longer, and at least for a few moments, no longer could our culture pretend that all truth is equally valid, mm-hmm. quote unquote, all truth. Every last person that day agreed that to fly a plane into a building is wrong, objectively bad. It is evil. So we, as Westerners, Western Europe, Canada, the U.S., we were awakened to the fact that the prosperity and opportunity of the West just weren't embraced by everyone. And a lot of people couldn't understand that. That's a good point. That there were still people in the world, ideologues in the world, who hold a different worldview. And, and if I can maybe be so bold to say a Stone Age worldview. Mm. And that radical Islamic worldview came crashing into the liberal democracies of the West and the postmodernism of the Western worldview that day. So what is this worldview of these, these uh, Al-Qaeda folks? You know, what's going on? Um, you know, it's an interesting thing. Like, I don't know that I know everything about it, but we've had 20 years to study it. Mm. Um, I did a self-study course uh, a couple of years later from Bill Warner, and I learned a lot because, you know, I love this Clyde, who we all know, Clyde Austin. He read the Quran after 9-11. He read the Quran. He said, well, let me learn about what, what is motivating at least yeah. these people and try and figure it out. And I, I think... You know, that's the kind of thinking Christians we want. And, yeah. and I didn't read the Quran, but a few years later, I did a self-study course, and I, I kind of tried to understand Islam as a whole. And then where does this radical group fit in? Because not everyone's Al-Qaeda. Yeah. So where does that fit in, and how does that matter? And, and then the Taliban, which, again, we're back in Afghanistan, and we all know Boko Haram in Nigeria and Al-Shabaab in uh, East Africa and ISIS, you know, which came and went, uh, or did it go? I mean, I don't know, but... Um, for Al-Qaeda anyway, and, and this super radical fringe, all these groups we named, anything that smacks of Westernism, Western progress, must be removed. Any rights or opportunities for women must be eliminated. I don't know if you've seen the memes going mm-hmm. around, the maybe six or eight or nine pictures of, a, of a, a, a woman and a girl and her doll dressed in clothes that are modest but but open all the way to where they're just in the absolute burqa with the tiniest slit. And it's just this really sad, and, and that's the progression. Any, any yeah. rights or opportunities for women must be eliminated. Any openness to another worldview or religion must be conquered. That's the word, conquered. So Al-Qaeda. Taliban had given Osama bin Laden safe harbor to recruit and train and hatch schemes of destruction. Mm-hmm. So why would he do this? And what are these Islamic terrorist groups? And is it the center of Islam or is it the fringe of Islam? And I think that's kind of a big question. Yeah, and I, I, well, I th- it's already so many great points and just I think a better understanding of the context of how, I mean, how, how do we get there? Because one of the things you said that I really found so interesting was, and I, I guess I, 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 it's hard for me to look back because I was, I mean, I really was in fifth grade when this happened. <laughs> uh, 
was, you know, this worldview that was brought to the forefront. I mean, one, because Americans, we, like we were living in like, we didn't have to face the good and the bad or the evil. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then all of a sudden we did that again, th- right. this, un- like we were all in, in unison at some level going, we all can agree on this one thing that flying a plane into a, in, into a building is bad, is evil. And so I, I actually remember th- the first time being in fifth grade going, man, I'm scared. Mm. Like there's something to this. Mm-hmm. Like that it this is wrong. How how can this be so? Like how like and it was shaping yeah. for me just yeah. in 5th grade. And I began asking those questions, why would someone do this? Mm-hmm. Why how did we get to terrorists? Right. How did we right. how did we get to this point? Can you help mm-hmm. kind of answer that? So, and to answer that, there's two ways that you need to do it and we're not going to be able to do both of them adequately. So in a sense, we're doomed to fail from the start. Good, but the, the one is to consider the Islamic worldview from within. Okay. And where do the radical Islamists fit? The second is to say, all right, what are their grievances with the West? And, you know, Western foreign policy and American foreign policy and oil and, and you know, equipping Mujahideen when the Soviet Union invaded and all that kind of stuff. And I just don't know enough about all that. But in any event, there's always ways we can do things better um, let's let's try first instead of only focusing on well what about our foreign policy let's say well what is this worldview that yeah. actually has been around for 13 1400 years and in, in in different ways so let's kind of start there and if we want to be thinking Christians in the world let's try to think of what uh, what is a Muslim thinking about themselves about their world in Afghanistan in Iran in Saudi Arabia here um, and then what are they thinking about Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda? Okay, yeah. And what is Osama thinking about Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda? Of course, he's not thinking anything more, but, but back in the day. All right, a couple of thoughts and a couple of things that when I did that self-study course and then when I've read others like Nabil Qureshi, who uh, worked for Z- Ravi Zacharias Ministries for many years, like a okay. great apologist, uh, Christian, um, he wrote some good stuff as well. I think he's gone on to be with the Lord. But... What makes someone a Muslim is not just that they worship Allah, but that they worship Allah in the way Muhammad did. Okay. This is going to be important later. They take him as the perfect example. And his words are the hadith, which is one of the big books. So his yeah. words. And then his way of life is the sunnah, from which we get Sunni Muslims. Uh, but Sunnah, his way of living, and his words and his way, his, his hadith and his Sunnah are the words and way that Muslims need to do. So again, not just worshiping Allah, but worshiping Allah the way Muhammad did. So for regular Muslims, they submit to Muhammad's way. By the way, the words Islam and Muslim are the same root words, and they mean submission. Okay. So the whole religion starts, the whole worldview starts, the whole political system starts with the concept of submission, which is why Abdullah yeah. is one of the biggest uh, names in the Muslim world, Abdullah. Well, Abed, Allah. So Allah, the God, Abed. What is A-B-D? Well, in Hebrew, it's slave. Hmm. And in Arabic, it's slave. Slave of Allah. That's who they want to be. Of course, we are bondservants of Jesus, and so we get that. Yeah. But that's their heart, is submission, total obedience, the beginning of it. So, worshiping Allah in the way he, in the way Muhammad did. They have primary texts. We've already talked about the Hadith, but everybody knows about the Quran. And the Quran 
is the series of revelations that Muhammad received. Some of them he got in Mecca the first 10 years. Some of them he got in Medina when he moved out of Mecca. And the Quran is made up of 114 chapters. They call them surahs. And here's the fun thing, which is a little bit confusing. They're arranged by length. They're arranged by length, not arranged by chronology or topic. Okay. So you get all the topics all mixed in and all the chronology, early written ones and late written ones all interspersed because they just said, let's put the longest one first, shortest one last, and just line them up by height. It's kind of like, you know, the old family photos. Yeah. <laughs> so the Quran, and I'm not laughing at the Quran, I'm just saying that's what it is. But it makes it confusing, yeah. and we'll get to that in a second. There were competing Qurans in the earliest days following Muhammad's death. And it wasn't until the third caliph, uh, Uthmar, who finally gave approval for the Quran we have today and ordered it in his, and then he took all the other ones and destroyed them. So we have no idea. We have no textual criticism. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the Muslims say, oh, we're so much better than the Bible. We have this direct revelation and they all agree. Well, it's because he destroyed all the other ones. Yeah. Whereas the New Testament, we have tens of thousands of manuscripts. And yeah, there's a comma here and there that's, and a misspelling of a word here and there. But we can triangulate backwards and know what the original said. Yep. But that's for another day. <laughs> all right. Five schools of thought. So because the Quran is confusing, because the Hadith is so big, Muhammad's words, and the Quran is Muhammad's revelations, you need a bunch of jurists or, or scribes, priests, uh, imams um, to understand how to live. And so your imam really matters. The mosque you're in and your imam, like I'm looking at you, Ben. (laughs) You're the imam. Like, so I want to know what to do and I want to know how to worship God the way uh, uh, Muhammad would. I come to you and say, help me out because here's my idea. And then you say, no, this is how you would interpret the Quran and the Hadith. Well, there's thousands of imams, thousands of mosques around the world. They're going to interpret them differently. Over time, there's five schools of thought so that people kind of line up with and imams would sort of be in one of the five. Four of yeah. them are the same. One of them is different, and that's called the Shia school of thought, and that's where we get Shiite Muslims. Okay. So they're Sunni Muslims, yeah. and they're Shia Muslims. So even Islam is not this monolithic whole. They're Shia and Sunni. You might have heard those two words. Shia is Iran. Sunni is everyone else. Okay. (laughs) I mean, just basically. Yeah. Uh, And so Sunni is Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Indonesia, blah, 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 North Africa. But the Shia is is the Iranian uh, version of Islam and wherever Iran uh, helps. That's why Iran is the Hamas, Hezbollah in Syria, um, in Iraq, uh, so much Shia is coming over, the Houthi rebels in Yemen. The Shia Muslims fighting against the Sunni Muslims. Um, And that's really why Saudi Arabia and the other, like Kuwait and Qatar, they're nervous of Iran's growing uh, presence in the Middle East because they don't like Shia Muslim, Islam. Yeah. So it's fascinating. It's just, it's just really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Which is why, by the way, in 2020 alone, you saw five countries, Sunni countries, uh, conduct... um, the Abrahamic Accords with Israel Hmm. because Iran hates Israel and they're like, we got to balance and we got to get another ally in this. It's just fascinating. So it's less like for even foreign policy or even just practicality. I mean, it's, it's all the way back to this, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's very So she is Sunni. That's one thing, but Osama bin Laden is Sunni, but he's radicalized. 
and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and all these things, they're radicalized within. So we've already mentioned Hamas and Hezbollah and all that. That's, that's funded by the Shia, by the Iranians. Um, but even within the Sunni side, uh, there's some super fundamentalists uh, out there. And it's kind of like within Christianity. You've got liberals who sort of like say, hey, man, whatever the culture says, that's okay. And we'll just add a little dash of Jesus to it. Sure. And then you've got super fundamentalists who are bombing abortion clinics, you know, righteous anger and saving babies. Like, we're like, no, both of these are totally wrong. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so also within uh, Islam, you've got a range of beliefs and practice. But the other thing you've got, if you're going to be a good Muslim, you're following Allah the way Muhammad would. But here's where it gets confusing. There's the Muhammad of Mecca and there's the Muhammad of Medina. Remember the Quran, and it's just arranged by yeah. length. So you don't know which surahs, chapters, are written in Mecca and which are written in Medina. And here's why it matters. Muhammad initially received revelations from Allah's messenger, Gabriel. And they were focused in the early years in Mecca, they were focused on religious principles and how to sort of do spiritual life in this world with a huge focus mm. on the end time, the apocalyptic judgment before Allah. And in those 10 years, he gained about 150 followers back then in Mecca. He was kicked out of Mecca, driven out of Mecca. He landed in Medina, and now he has a different focus. It's the political growth of Islam. And the revelations he receives in Medina, those parts of the Quran that are from Medina, this has to do with the growth of Islam politically and how do we handle the unbelievers around us. And this is where he develops the concept of jihad holy war against unbelievers. Unbelievers, by the way, kafir. And it's either okay. unbeliever or infidel. Uh, both are the same for him at that point. In the last 10 years of his life, based in Medina, so the first 10 years based in Mecca, religious, he gets 150 followers. The last 10 years of his life, based in Medina, he conquers the Arabian Peninsula. Nice. That's a, that's <laughs> I mean, a twist. I mean, he goes political. He okay. goes jihad. And he gets... So the question is, I want to follow Allah the way Muhammad did. Well, are you going to follow the Muhammad of Mecca or the Muhammad of Medina? They're kind of so hard to do both, right? Already. Well, already, yeah. Like already you're going to have contradictions and different. And the early focus on sort of last judgment and spirituality and the latter focus on a caliphate across the earth, which huh. was beginning to be put in place. So... Which Muhammad are you following? Which Quran are you reading? Are you reading the early surahs or the later surahs? The religious surahs or the political surahs? The religious ones early on saying, yeah, we love the Jews and the Christians, the people of the book. And the ones later saying, you know, kafir, infidel, unbeliever, we need to take them over, force them to convert or whatever. So which one are you going to be? I mean, you see where it gets That's a little so sticky. <laughs> it so, gets just a little sticky. To kind of summarize and help everybody for just a second, I think, like uh, I mean, it help me out if I'm wrong here, but so one of the key takeaways, I think, from what you were just saying is, so Islam is about following a law, but not just following a law, following a law specifically the way Muhammad did, right? right? And so there's a problem there, what we were just talking about, which, which Muhammad are you following? Right. Which is the early Mecca Muhammad, where he's very religious, he's, mm -hmm. I mean, very spiritual, right? Mm -hmm. And focusing, I mean, on, in the, on that side, but then there's the later Muhammad of Medina, uh, which is much more political, which mm -hmm. ends up relating to going into jihad, right? Is that and about this right? this is super s simplified, but yeah, those yeah. are the general contours. I think you're right. Well, I think right out of the gate, I mean, that, it just, that's, that gets confusing really quickly just of how, I mean, if, if the key here is 
not just obeying and following Allah, but obeying and following Allah the way Muhammad did. I mean, there's, that's a key thing. Mm-hmm. It's not, we can't just lose sight of that, which you're bringing to light. And then the problem there is there's different ways to do that. Mm-hmm. Oh man. this like it, And there's one more confusing thing for us, which, which does not have to do with Mecca and Medina, yeah. but it has to do with this. There are two ethics within Islam. There's how you treat fellow Muslims and how you treat kafirs okay. or outsiders. See, Christianity, Jesus said, and everybody loves it, do unto others as you'd have them do to you. It's the golden rule. It's universally mm. applicable, right? It's for everyone. And, and yeah. you're not a follower of Jesus if you treat people differently based on who they are, which, yeah. you know, is convicting. And we got to keep, rem- <laughs> you know, <laughs> living true. into that and trusting his power. But love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Turn the other cheek. This is Sermon on the Mount stuff. Yeah. Here we are. This is Jesus' one way of treating. But in, in uh, Islamic thought... There is the way you, you treat Muslims one way, you treat kafir another way. It's appropriate to have two separate standards. Hmm. So you're not allowed to lie, cheat, or enslave a Muslim, but you can for a kafir and if so they it, won't convert. And I, and I actually had a question there, and you just answered it, which it was kind of this idea of like, I mean, I think at some level we have that as well as Christians. Like we can almost treat non-Christians a little bit differently, like the way I would trust someone or the way that... Uh, I'm, but that's very different. Like the, the amount of trust that I would give to someone who I don't, I don't know as well as well, a non-Christian. And, and I, I don't think trust is per se because they're Christian or non-Christian is if you know them or not. Like yeah, trust is fair. earned. So there's, there's a lot of non-Christians who are far more trustworthy than some well, Christians. It, yeah. I know. Yeah. And I think that's the key. I think you're right. Uh, but that, that's really helpful that, I mean, it's all the way to, to, I mean, everything you were just saying, like whether you, mm-hmm. it's one thing you can lie, cheat or steal from, uh, I mean, from a kafir, from an infidel, but you would never do that to one of your own. That's a great distinction. And that's where jihad comes in. Yeah. Because look, if, if Allah is the only God and we're, we're going to take over the world, and if they won't convert, then we'll do everything we can to convert them. Yeah. And, and including, including uh, holy war, jihad. Man, that's so good. Thanks, Jason. Just, of, I mean, all the way from, again, following the laws, ultimately following the law the way Muhammad did, different Muhammads. And then just different ethics. There's so it's much tough, though. right there. And it's not necessarily your neighbors, but maybe, but we just, we're just sort of like, we, we love the people in front of us, but we're saying, okay, here's the worldview. How do we live with them and how do we yeah. understand this so that we can approach them with the love of Christ? Amen. So let's, let's take this worldview that we've just talked about and, and let's kind of come back to the day, like what's mm. going on in Afghanistan and I mean, over the last 20 years, should we have even been there at all? <laughs> I mean, I'll give you a softball. <laughs> well, that's good. Uh, you know, in the annals of American foreign policy missteps, the month of August 2021 is going to rank near the top for, I hope, a long time. I hope we don't yeah. have worse blunders than this. It was tragic and silly. It was humiliating, uh, vastly avoidable. Um, it was a defeat of implementation to an extent that, you know, really we've not seen for ages. But does that make all 20 years a mistake? Maybe, maybe not. Does it mean we shouldn't never have been there in the first place? You know, we might not solve all of that, but let's talk about three huge blessings of the NATO presence in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, of the U.S. and NATO presence. Yeah. There are three big blessings uh, and I would say, number one, um, we've gone 20 years without a large-scale terrorist attack yeah. on the scale 
that was 9-11. And this matters. Um, you know, Al-Qaeda, don't you think there's other big Western symbols Osama bin Laden would have loved to have teed up next? Like, okay, World Trade Center, Pentagon, yeah, and whatever the fourth plane was for, the, the White House or the Capitol or whatever, sure. we don't know. But it certainly wasn't my house in Kinston. Yeah. <laughs> there was no symbolic value in that. So don't you think Osama was thinking, oh, Eiffel Tower, Buckingham Palace, sports stadium in the U.S. or, or Europe filled with soccer fans. Yeah. Uh, Vegas Strip, there's the West's degeneracy, which I agree <laughs> with him on that. Uh, the Vatican, yeah. I mean, the head of two billion Christians, yeah, throw that out. Jerusalem, maybe. Somehow they would have figured out how to save Dome of the Rock. But, I mean, I'm just saying, like, there's enough other symbols out there. He was just, he was just getting started. Mm-hmm. There's no doubt about it. He, this, the Twin Towers was not his swan song, swan song that he now goes into the night. Yeah. It was just, it was Pearl Harbor. It was a surprise attack to start something big. Yeah. They never came. Smaller attacks came, and they were just as bad. But on the order of 2,000, 5,000, 10,000 people dead, those never came. A dirty bomb in a city, biological warfare, large-scale trauma, they didn't come. And when you go backwards earlier, you go all the way back to the the parking lot bomb, World Trade Center, in February of uh, 93. They were hoping to bring the building down. Six died, 1,000 wounded. They didn't bring the building down. Few years later, the embassy bombings, Kenya and Tanzania, 98, nothing. USS Cole in October 2000, September 2001, the Twin Towers. I mean, look at that trend. Twin Towers wasn't the end. It was just, they were just ramping up their boldness and ability. Hmm. They were learning something every time. And uh, they had safe harbor in the, yeah. in the caves of Afghanistan and under the Taliban. They did. Uh, but since then, nothing larger or nearly as large. And the arc of that increasing destruction was broken. Yeah, we saw the 7-7-tube uh, London attacks, the nightclubs in Paris, the Indonesia bombing, and several other things like that. But that's not the same as the World Trade Center or the Vatican or Buckingham Palace or whatever, you know. That was not on the order of bombing a government embassy, a warship, or taking down a skyscraper. So that's worth noting, recognizing and being thankful for. So that's the first thing I think. It wasn't all for naught. Yeah. They stopped a they stopped a bigger bigger thing. Yeah, 20 years without a large scale attack. I mean, it's something to be thankful for. Yeah. I think the second one is that we've had 20 years. I mean, there there have been 20 years of national growth and pride. Like I mean, like in, in Afghanistan. Like in Afghanistan. Yeah, absolutely. For, for two decades, Afghanistan has had like a, a varying but a degree of freedom, of prosperity and growth that I mean, I, when I look back, like I, there's no way they could possibly have imagined they would have in 1999. Like, there's just no way. When the grip of the Taliban uh, was, I mean, like was around their throats. Like, there, there's no way they could have ever expected that it, within the next two decades they would ha- be having the freedom that they actually mm-hmm. have. Yeah. I mean, like... Look at what they look at what's been accomplished. Boys and girls schools, mm. like there have been Olympic and Paralympic teams. I mean, they've got the, the national soccer team. That's national right. universities have 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 been opened and not just open, but actually thriving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, a key marker, like business has been growing in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. There are forty million people in Afghanistan. Sixty-two percent of them, I believe are under the age of 24. Yeah, it's something like that, you're right. So what's incredible is that, I mean, if the math is right, like around 25 million Af- Afghani, like have never grown, I mean, have grown up 
without the Taliban's grip around them. That's huge. That's incredible. That is huge. But, and and this is the part that really affects me, like that really hurts when uh, last week, I think, when I was on Twitter and all of a sudden I see a video pop up. And it's like with the U.S. military leaving, and I see planes taking off, and I see these little specks falling. And we find out it's a 17-year-old soccer player who fell from the transport plane. Mm-hmm. And we go from from seeming like prosperity from 25 million people growing up never knowing really the Taliban Mm -hmm. to 17-year-olds who are willing to risk everything because they don't believe they have a future under the Taliban. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I just think we we shouldn't discount the good that the the U.S. and the the NATO mission brought into that that country. Like, I'm I'm not saying we should be in... We should do this in every country, but, and there are definitely missteps, right? Like there were mistakes. That's right. That's right. But But I'm saying at some level, there was a point where the, the amount of good that was done, I think was worth the amount of time that we were there Mm. and there has been success. And I think we'll watch this rolling back and I think we'll see that this was that in so many ways, this was good because we stepped in and helped humanity like we helped people we helped Mm -hmm. families we helped men and women and children again be outside the grip of the taliban outside of disaster for 20 Mm -hmm. years Mm -hmm. i think that's the second one and i think that can't be overstated because they're not letting women go to school starting tomorrow kind of thing like i don't know you know i mean we're recording this just a, a week or two before we're actually airing it but we don't know, what, no matter what the Taliban is saying, we don't know what's coming until it comes. And would that they would hold to their word, but yeah. probably not. And, and I think that's a, that's a tragedy. But at least for 20 years, 60% of the country has tasted the joys of freedom. The third thing, uh, these 20 years, are they for not? I'll tell you what, 20 years of gospel inroads into the country. So apart from security issues globally, apart from humanitarian issues in the country, the first two, there's a deeper joy. There's an eternal dividend that we will not know fully for years. <laughs> because along with NATO forces, along with U.S. military, you know who else came? The missionaries. Yeah. And they came to advance the gospel. And they came often in humanitarian ways, in love uh, and, and, um, and care, in compassion, in people's hurting and, and, uh, and, and lack of physical things, as well as scripture translation and, and things like that. As small as the Afghan church is, it's growing by leaps and bounds. And there are stories that are yet to be told of how the gospel really is taken root in Kabul and the other cities and towns and little villages that we don't ever know the names of, but we will yeah. in eternity. And of the remotest of the remote places on earth. And here's why we stress this, because we listening to this here in the U.S., I mean, we're, we're like, man, Biden, you blew it on the implementation of this. Like, totally, you blew it. And you can go back and say, Trump, you blew it on negotiating with the Taliban and leaving out the, uh, the Afghan government back last year. You can say that, too. But what the biggest deal is not what it means for America's black eye, as bad as that is, and no one wants that. But here's the deal. The biggest deal is, will this usher in an outpouring of the Spirit in the Afghan mm-hmm. church as they stand up for Christ in new ways and under new duress and a new openness by others 
under a new darkness in Afghanistan, a new openness by others to the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, one, one thinker has said this, uh, J. Dudley Woodbury said, whenever Muslim governments have adopted a militant type of Islam and have tried to impose a form of Sharia law and where there's a local example of the gospel, an alternate friendly Christian presence, it just opens the hearts of Muslims. Muslims are attracted to the gospel eight days a week. Yeah. And so we, we don't know what's going to come there, but I'm telling you, when the gospel takes roots, and it has, and it's growing, and now they have to stand up for their faith, and even the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, if they're going to be... I've been thinking that quote the whole time you've been talking. Yeah. Man. So we don't know the, the joy of this third one, but, um, but I think that's also one of the great good things that have come out of the 20 years of the NATO and U.S. presence. Yeah. I mean, 20 years of the gospel being poured into a country. Like, I, I just have to remind myself, and I do this with so many things. I mean, God can do more through 20 years of preaching, of, mm-hmm. of, of gospel witness oh, than yeah. we could ever through the perfect amount of foreign policy or whatever oh, aspect yeah. that is. Absolutely. And there's just so much hope there. And I think, I think that at some level, I, 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 can, I can easily lose sight of that when, again, seeing these videos of, mm-hmm. of kids being ripped away and, mm-hmm. and the Taliban moving in and owning, like, that even amongst uh, dropping the ball in a lot of places, even amongst wondering, going, was this, any of this worth it? It's easy to see this one thing, that 20 years of gospel witness, mm-hmm. that's worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, the last last story, maybe, because this, this just puts it all in perspective. Uh, and this actually predates these 20 years, but it's still the same country of Afghanistan, and it's still the same gospel and the people of God. Uh, you know, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 78 and was there for, for 10 years. Um, and there were a lot of refugee camps. And in a refugee camp outside of Peshawar, uh, conditions were just disastrous. So we're talking early, mid-80s. Uh, and refugee children would run around barefoot because they just don't have any, any shoes. And in the cold and in the heat, and it didn't matter. And so like a Christian organization, like maybe a World Vision or a Samaritan's Purse or one of these Christ-centered compassion organizations brought in hundreds and hundreds of sandals for the kids in these camps. And the group decided not just hand out the sandals, you know, fast and efficiently, which is probably what I would have done, uh, but to slow down and wash the children's feet and then to put the sandals on them. So they enlisted as many other believers as possible. And, uh, and Dudley Woodbury relates this story, and he says even his own daughter-in-law was part of this. So mm-hmm. this is an eyewitness account. And carefully washed the children's filthy feet, putting salve on the sores, and then praying silently for them, nothing overt, but silently asking God to change lives, change countries. And some months later, in this little place, the primary school teacher asked her children, who are the best Muslims? Who are the best Muslims here? Mm. You know, as this primary school teacher is Muslim, it's a Muslim country, these kids are Muslim. Who are the best Muslim? And the little girl, you know, five years old, seven years old, out of the mouths of babes, she puts her hand up, the kafirs, the infidels. And the teacher's like, what are you talking about? She said, well, the Mujahideen killed my father, but the kafirs washed my feet. And that's the gospel. I mean, that's the people we need to be, and that's what we're looking for in the whole world, in Afghanistan, in the Muslim world, and then in our own communities. Are we the people that wash the feet for Jesus?
Amen. Jason, thank you so much just for really taking the time to do this and just getting all this together and helping walk us, me uh, and our listeners through what, I mean, one, just what the, what the worldview is and helping us make account of 20 years ago. That It's incredible how far we've come in 20 years. Yeah, my and that, pleasure. And, and at least three things to take away. I just remember that of, of the, I think it was worth it. And uh, the hope of what a gospel of what how God has made a difference in a single country, an entire people, like just mm-hmm. in twenty years, it's incredible. Anyways, again, thank you so much, and thank you guys so much for listening uh, and being a part. And we'll see you next time. This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook and.